0: Hi, everyone. Welcome to another edition of the Farm Chatter podcast. On this episode of the podcast, I'm going to be joined by Professor Yossi Chayes, who is Sir Isaac Wolfson, Professor of Jewish Thought at the University of Haifa. And we'll be discussing his new book, which is titled The Kabbalistic Tree, Ilana Kabbali, from Penn State University Press. And it's all about Kabbalistic trees, Uh, Ilanot uh, so, if the, for those that aren't familiar, we're going to get into that and explain what exactly this is and why he wrote a book about it and how he researched the manuscripts, etc. So, uh, thank you, Professor Chayes, for joining me.
1: My pleasure. Thanks for having me.
0: So let's start off. Tell the listeners a little bit about yourself and your background.
1: Um, I'm a very old man, F-f-f- 58, I think. Last I last I checked, oh. I was born in Detroit to a Holocaust survivor father from Vienna. And a Bethlehem, Pennsylvania-born mom, um, day school educated, um, and uh, I guess <laughs> I did a couple of degrees in in history uh, at the University of Michigan as a young fellow, and then came to Jerusalem to uh, to do. Uh, some study in the department of Jewish thought when I when I got into into um, more serious study of, of of Kabbalah and Jewish philosophy um, for uh, mostly for financial reasons because I was already married and and uh, planning on starting a family I chose to do my PhD in the states rather than stay in Israel so my my uh, then wife and I. Moved to New Haven, where I, we spent four years and I had three kids. Uh, and I did all the coursework at Yale for a PhD in, in Jewish history with David Ruderman. He was my advisor. That was just before he moved to Penn. He moved to Penn towards the end of my studies with him. Uh, and then uh, I, came, I came to Jerusalem in the middle of the 90s and uh, did my PhD research at the National Library uh, for the most part. Uh, wrote my dissertation, which was published as as uh, my first book on spirit possession, on basically dibukim in early modern Jewish culture. As a kind of cultural historian, a, uh, someone in, I was interested and still am interested in in the subject of Ruderman's book, Kabbalah, Magic, and Science. Those have always been. Uh, I, I always joke with David that he wrote the book and then moved on to other topics. I read the book, decided I was going to study with him and haven't stopped working on the subject ever since. Kabbalah, magic and science. So I don't I have never done kabbalah quite in the way that the Jerusalem school kabbalah scholars do it. I've always taken a more cultural historical approach to the to the subject. In the Dibbuk book I was more working as a kind of cultural anthropologist and uh and then until I, until I kind of uh, fell upon the subject of the Kabbalistic tree, I was continuing along uh, roughly similar lines, writing about magic and uh, uh, various, uh, you know, various topics that had that kind of common denominator uh, of Kabbalah magic or the, in the history of science. Um, so yeah, I've lived here now since the since the mid '90s. I got a job as soon as I finished my PhD. Uh, I got a job at the University of Haifa, and uh, because I wanted to live in Israel, I chose it over some options back in the states. And I've been here ever since. Moved with my family up to Zichon Yaakov, and uh, now have five children, Kenai, Nahora, and uh, ranging from 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 ten to uh, thirty. I don't know what thirty one. I can't. Don't ask me how old. And uh, bruchashev. You know, uh, life is good. Okay, and a grandson. I should say, in case my daughter listens to this podcast, I have a grandson. Hod. Hod Yitzhak.
0: Okay, so yeah, we got all the all the family <laughs> information out. Um, very
1: important.
0: <laughs> yeah, absolutely. Okay, so. As you mentioned, your first book was on, that's by, yeah, I think Penn published that, right? Uh, that's Penn, correct. You know, not Penn State, this is Penn State. But now, is... how, okay, so we're going to discuss in a minute what the a Kabbalistic tree, what an Ilan HaKabali is, it says, you know, actually, the, the title is interesting, they put the Kabbalistic tree and then Ilan HaKabali in Hebrew. So so it
1: is, that's it, a story. If you want to hear it, <laughs> you, I, can, I can put yeah, it we can get into that.
0: But how did you get interested in this topic? I mean, how did...
1: Accidentally. This... It, it accidentally no when I, I was at the university of michigan doing my master's degree i had the good fortune to study with moshe rossman from barilan university and moshe who was an economic historian of of the of the jews of 18th century poland when he was working on financial archives of this magnate family uh he discovered uh, the tax, basically the the tax uh, report that mentioned the Baal Shem Tov by name, and when he when he saw the Balshemtov's name in that document, he realized that uh, it was a gold mine, Not not financially necessarily, but it, but but as an historian, he had found the first ex- external corroboration of the very existence of the Balshemtov. And Moshe Rossman, whom I love dearly, is no lover and. Was no lover and is no lover of Hasidus, so he was in this predicament. Like how now he has to write about the Baal Shem Tov, but he, he's very misnagdish guy. So, but he but he's also a very fine historian. And when a good historian is given a gift like that, well, you have to do something with it. That you have no choice. So, I I I, I always. Had that story in my mind, how how my teacher Moshe Rosman had come across something that he wasn't looking for, and then as soon as he saw it, he know he knew that his career would never be the same again. So you know, my Moshe Rosman moment was uh, a dozen years ago, going for Shabbos lunch to my friend Menachem Kalus in Yerushalayim, and seeing um, photocopies of. Kabbalistic Ilanot scattered around his office that he'd uh, fastidiously taped from end to end to create these odd looking uh, photo, photocopied Megillot. Uh, and I said to him, Menachem, you know, what, what, what is this? What are you up to here with these things? And he said to me, well, you know, there's a guy, a collector in Tel Aviv, his name is William Gross. He collected tens of these Megilot and he was asking different Kabbalah professors, like Moshe Idel, to explain to him what were these things that he collected over the course of 40 years, and they all told him they couldn't tell him anything because these things had never been researched. But finally, Idel told him, I have a former student who, if you pay him something, will at least look at them and write down for you about each one. What are the ideas from Kabbalah that are being visualized in these scrolls? So, um, you know, I looked at them, and I saw for the visually fascinating, and William had collected them because they are so cool-looking. And thought about what Menachem had just told me, namely that this was a a whole uh, genre, really, of of artifacts that had never been researched, and I and the penny dropped. I, I really thought of Moshe Rossman in that moment. I said, "This is this is it, Menachem. He's you're you're a guy who finished his PhD and never got a job and needs an income and needs academic affiliation, and I'm a a young." well, I wasn't that young, but okay, still a 40, 40-something lecturer at the university who has been told over and over again, you need to get grants and you need to You know, publish this and that. I said, let me put in an application to the Israel Science Foundation and say that there's this whole body of material that has never been studied. And uh, we... I want to make sense of it. I want to know what is this? Well, how many such things are out there? When were they made? Who made them? What were they used for? And if I get it, I said to Menachem, "I'll give you a postdoc, and so you'll have Parnassa, you'll have academic affiliation, and I'll have won a grant to to do something cool." And um, I, you know, it shocked me at the time. Now it seems to be a now it seems to me like a no brainer. But I got the grant. The Israel Science Foundation gave us three years, and what was uh, at the time a rather modest sum of money because I was afraid to ask for too much because I thought maybe they wouldn't give it to me if I was too greedy. But I, all the money went to Menachem, and I let him continue working on it for a while until I, I, I realized that, uh, it, I for I had to get involved myself, and I wanted to get involved myself, and and gradually I got deeper and deeper into it. Um, and um, and Menachem stayed with stayed with the project over the course of uh, a number of years, even into a second cycle of funding from the Israel Science Foundation. But then I got other postdocs involved, and, and the whole thing just grew uh, uh, into a, a very a very substantial research project. When you know, I, just to put it in perspective, when when you realize that this is a genre. Of Of material that ha- has been produced by Jews since the fourteenth century and and Jews in Western Europe, Eastern Europe, Italy, North Africa, yemen, uh, Kurdistan, Iraq, um, so many centuries and so many different cultural environments that it really, it, it wasn't one project. I realized that you need a, you, can have a, you can have three or four years of research just to do the, the ilanot produced in Italy during the Renaissance. And you can have another three or four years easily to do the Lurianic ilanot that are visualizing the Kabbalah associated with the Arizal uh, that, that began being made in the late 17th century. So um, it's a project that is very far along now on the one hand, but also still in its infancy in a, in, in a way. I mean I'm, I, I had a hard time submitting the book manuscript because I kept feeling like if I, if I hold on to it, I'll uh, I'll, find, I'll find a, a new Elan that I didn't know before or I'll figure out something about an Elan that it, uh, I hadn't been able to figure out by the time. The book was due to the publisher, but it it and, you know and my graduate students are now publishing as much or more uh, as th- as they're publishing as much or more than uh, than I am. Is that English? But in uh, finding out new things all the time, I'm already a bit sad that some of their newest insights are not in this book. Like the re- the book really is just the first statement. I know it'll. I know it'll be consulted for a long time to come, but it's in a way it's already out of date.
0: Yeah, well, uh, we'll talk about the website there is at the end, but but yeah. here to start. So, first of all, the book. I want to just mention the book right away. The book is beautifully produced. The book is. 450 pages, I think it's a little bit larger than a regular book. And it's the glossy pages with over 250 color images. It's just beautiful. As you mentioned to see these I'll say the middle use the Israeli pronunciation. But but we kind of buried the lead what is a Kabbalistic tree? We're sitting here, I don't know how many minutes in, and people are like, what, what, right. what is this? What is a Kabbal- for the Kabbalistic now, tree? Now, this is audio only, not visual. You really need to see this. So we can talk about maybe putting some links in the show's notes for listeners can access, be able to see. Sure. What we're about. But explain kind of, what is a Kabbalistic tree, and how does it look, and all that.
1: Okay. I mean, I'm going to guess that no few of your listeners have seen this uh diagram you can call it a kind of medieval infographic where you have uh 10 circles connected by a number of lines or channels uh i, I in a certain in, in ideal schemes they would be 22 because there's uh always a kind of idealization of a notion that was first articulated in Sefer Yetzirah, that there are 10 Sfirot and 22 letters and that these are the 32 pathways of, of wisdom. Um, so if you can just uh, visualize for a moment in your mind that that image of a, uh, a circle on top and then uh, and then three, three uh, rows going down from that s- top circle um, that's uh, usually uh, titled Keter or crown going f- from Keter to Chokhmah, Bina, Chesed, Gvura, Tiferet, Netzach, chodisod Malchut. That's in a nutshell, a Kabbalistic tree. And it's, it, it, it's actually an infographic that the Kabbalists borrowed from the medieval scientific tradition where it was associated with Porphyry actually on Porphyry's commentary on Aristotle's categories where it was used to visualize the scale of being. And it was also in widespread use in family trees that were commonly used in the Middle Ages both to give the uh, genealogies of the great dynasties of kings and popes, um, those kinds of things as well as uh, by Christians to visualize the genealogy of their uh, their savior, whose name I won't mention on your podcast, but uh, <laughs> so uh, it, it was actually a very prestigious infographic, you could say, and something very cool about it that was relevant to what you might imagine would be a concern over hagshama, uh, over making Hashem uh, having a. Uh, gashmias uh, notion of of, of, of Hashem, Th- this infographic doesn't imply anything spatial. Like when you give a family tree just because your mother and father are above you, it doesn't mean they're floating above you in space. It just means they're prior to you and they caused you. So it's causal rather than spatial. So in terms of the Jewish concern for not visualizing Hashem, it's actually relatively safe uh, a v- relatively safe uh, way of doing so, to kind of visualize the, the, the powers within the, d- the divine realm without overtly implying that, uh, that we're speaking about uh, entities that exist in, in space and have, that have some kind of cor- corporeality. Um, so, so here's the thing: you have the diagram or the infographic itself, and the Kabbalists use that as well as other diagrams when they start uh, ta- when they when they attempt to visualize the the structure of the divine world. I should say, even parenthetically, that you know, if you look in the, in the Tanakh or in 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 in, in Sifrut Chazal. The, we don't see a real concern with trying to come up with an abstract understanding of the divine realm. We have quite anthropomorphic images of Hashem in the, in the Tanakh and in Sifut Chazal. But with the coming of philosophy into the Jewish world in the Middle Ages, you have a, a, a new impetus to think systematically about about the divine, of course, the Rambam will say derech lot via negativa. You can't say anything about Hashem other than maybe sechel muskal, but but nothing positive about Hashem's uh, midot or, or okay, if they're midot, they're midot, but not um, essential aspects of Hashem. You can't say Hashem is anything. So the Mekubalim basically accepted the Rambam's notion of the ultimate, the ultimate God as being uh, Ein, and called that Einsof, but then said, no, there's a whole interface between that ultimate level of Hashem about which we can say nothing. And we even call it nothing as if we say nothing with a capital N, the nothing that's that's the true something, but we can't call it something. So we'll call it nothing. so the Melkubalim said, yes, that's true. The Rambam is right. Almost very uh, very few Mikubalim were interested in opposing the Rambam or saying the Rambam was wrong. They said, no, oh, the Rambam, the Rambam, okay. he, he, he was right. But what he didn't know was that you could also talk about the interface between Ein, between that infinite, ultimate Hashem and the Bria, the creation uh, and the, and the and that aspect of Hashem that was creation facing, that was creation oriented, is the aspect of Hashem that's described by the Sefirot. So that asp- those internal divine uh, energies, um, categories, um, uh, characteristics, and so forth, those those are spoken about in terms of the Sefirot. And and configured in different ways, but the most popular one eventually became the tree. So here's where my my research comes in. So you have the diagram itself, and usually in the early diagrams that you find in in, in the oldest Kabbalistic manuscripts, it'll just give the names of the Sefirot: Keter, Chokhmah, Binah, Chesed, Gvurah, and so forth. And around the 14th century, uh, Kabbalists Apparently in Italy for the first time, but they it may it, there, there's some evidence that, that points to to Spain, pre uh, Spain as well as a, a possible uh, source for this genre even before it came to Italy. They took this diagram and started copying it onto large parchments. It basically enlarged the diagram, and all of a sudden had. Uh, a lot of real estate to work with. They had, they made the circles were big, the channels were big, the areas in inside the diagram and around the diagram were plentiful. And and what the Kabbalists did with this real estate was uh, to leverage it to create works that not only provided that very basic iconic visualization of the. Uh, uh divine uh, constellation you might say they often used astronomical terms to talk about this in the in the early Kabbalistic texts um, not not only to to present that constellation of sphirot and their interconnections but entire introductions to Kabbalah that they uh, could uh, could present. In such a way that everything that was relevant to a certain part of the Kabbalistic tree would be inscribed where it belonged. So they were treating treating these as maps rather than simply as diagrams. And in the circles, that meant they could not only just put keter, but they could put other 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 so-called kinuyim, other appellations. So that uh, people trying to learn Kabbalah could know that whenever they see uh, such terms in the Torah, for example, oh, they would know that must be one of the names of this sfera. And if they wanted to expand on the meaning of any of the aspects of the tree that were vi- that were pictured. On the parchment they could do so adjacent to its location so they might even put Ein Sof at the top of the parchment and then they want to say a few words about Ein Sof so they'll just put a paragraph right next to Ein Sof and you have you have then an introduction to Kabbalah that reads differently because a regular text you read linear, linear linearly you don't have a choice about how you're reading it you begin at the beginning and you read it through but, but here, it's more like a map where you sit there and you can begin anywhere and you can you can also imaginatively engage with it. And this, of course, brings us to maybe a potential follow-up question whenever you, if and when you choose to ask it, is, how, how do you, how did they use these things? So would you like to hear a little bit about that? Yes, absolutely. Uh, okay. I want to just... Say, by way of introduction that if you think about it, if a Jew with a with a with a, a, a parchment scroll at, in, in the Middle ages, is not just studying Torah. By the Middle ages, Jews had abandoned scrolls in favor of codices or regular bound books, even if they were made of parchment. Pieces of paper, but they they look like like our books before we had e-books. At least they look like uh, regular books. And parchment scrolls were only in use for you would say uh, my ritual purposes, to, like stam, right, uh, sefer Torah, tefillin, mezuzah. Meg- um, Meg- Megillat Esther, and so forth. If you see a Jew with a scroll, it means he's going to say a bracha, he's going to do something. So to me, it was very suggestive that when I, uh, when I started thinking about how uh, in the 14th century, the Mekubalim made a, obviously a conscious decision to create artifacts that would be parchment scrolls this couldn't just be say well you know we didn't have big poster boards so we had to get a piece of parchment but it to me it it, it suggests that there's a ritual involved if 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 they're going to use this medium it means that there's a there's a there's a, they they're they're performing something they're enacting something so now i don't think that there's just one thing that 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 is the kabbalistic performance of the kabbalistic tree, as I think, for example, in the in the pre-Lurianic or the classical kabbalistic trees, it's much more just like a regular map, and you the the real practice of engaging with this is similar to the way people in the Middle Ages and in the, in the Renaissance engaged with their maps. They weren't looking at maps like we think today of Google map or Waze. I want to go visit my friend. I put his address in and I go from point A to point B. A map in somebody's house in the Middle Ages of the Renaissance was uh, a way of making present that which was pictured on that map. So it, it's more like what today we think of as virtual reality than well, than Google Maps. Because if you're sitting in, in somewhere in Poland or in Italy or in North Africa and you have a, a, a map of, of the mekomot hakadoshim of the holy places in Eretz Yisrael, on your wall, that is an invitation to, to undertake a kind of virtual pilgrimage to Eretz Yisrael. And in, in your holy imagination to, to visit those places. So, and and that's just, that's actually true uh, very broadly of the way pre-modern people thought about images. So when you have an image that's an image of the divine world, there's no way that people in in the pre-modern period would not feel that that was somehow making that world present and that their engagement with such an image was a participation in that which was pictured in that image. So, having the Kabbalistic tree in front of you on a large parchment, and some of them are, are also what I call luxury parchments that were clearly commissioned by wealthy patrons and they're beautifully, illust- beautifully illustrated beyond just the texts and the circles. And for that, I would, uh, you know, recommend people to, to go over to uh, a very beta website that I have uh, for the project called, uh, that's at ilanot, I-L-A-N-O-T dot O-R-G, and have a look at any of the magnificent parchments, especially the Oxford magnificent parchment, to see what I mean by magnificent uh, illuminated Kabbalistic trees. But these these are uh, you know artifacts that, pe- that that people performed by uh, by contemplating by 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 being with them, gazing upon them uh, and uh, and and of course, n- there's not never just one use for almost any object, and i I don't want to detract from this the significance of these artifacts for teaching people kabbalah this was a, a, a fundamental way of introducing new students of kabbalah to this lore the ramak moshe cordovero the greatest kabbalist of the 16th century perhaps even you, you'll have to you know the people say oh the Ari was greater the ramak was greater but the, but the Ari didn't open his mouth until the Ramak passed away. So the Ari, and also the Ari called the Ramak Mori virabi. So the, the Ramak expressed some concern even that beginners using Kabbalistic trees would have a kind of hagshama in their imaginations, that they would start imagining that Hashem actually looks like a Kabbalistic tree. This bothered him and concerned him, mm-hmm. and he wrote about it a few times in a few of his farm, Ultimately, each time concluding that although there he, there was a there was a reason for his concern, that at the end of the day, everything in Yiddishkeit is a kind of material container for a spiritual essence, and that that this was a it was a, a legitimate uh, and, and and really necessary uh, um, w- mode of of introducing people to, uh, the secrets of, of the, of the, of the inner workings of, of the divine. So that's, uh, that's like just the beginning of it. There's a, there's a kind of, um, transitional moment where the, the genre that had been used as a kind of map of the divine realm for, 300 years under undergoes a transformation uh, when for the first time Kabbalists begin trying to create Lurianic Kabbalistic trees and, and Tari, the Lurianic Kabbalah is so much more complicated than the Kabbalah that preceded it that they needed these Kabbalistic trees to do things that the earlier Kabbalists didn't need their main concern was to show the interlocking relations of the so-called partsufim, or the divine personae in the Kabbalah in the Lurianic system. Um, so you you and so they and they also felt I think from a pedagogical point of view teach how to help people learn Lurianic Kabbalah, which was so complicated that it was essential to give people a sense of a kind of. Of, of of the of an ideal picture of the unfolding of of the of the worlds as described in Lurianic Kabbalah. So what I say in the in the book is that you could describe the transition from the classical Ilan from the classical Kabbalistic tree to the Lurianic Kabbalistic tree as a transition from a map to a timeline. Or, or, you could say that the Lurianic tree is a, a moving map. It's still, it's still mapping the territory of the divine, but it's, it's dynamic, um, and the dynamism is in the un, is in the scrolling itself. I think that also gets back to the question of how these things were used, because in the classical Ilan, I don't think that the scrolling itself was the was the big Indian, like the it was uh, meditating on the on the big picture. And the dynamism of the classical Ilan is in the interconnections within the spherot, like all of the the networking within that system. But the dynamism of the Lurianic Ilan is is in the scrolling itself. When a person scrolls through a Lurianic Ilan in their sacred imagination, they are participating in the unfolding of the worlds themselves. So it's a kind of participatory, uh, imma- imaginative guided meditation.
0: Adkan. Okay, there is, it is, and there's a lot more to, uh, to follow, discuss and follow up on there. So, I first of all, will link to the website, as you mentioned, people can check it out. Uh, and the book as well, I, I mentioned already here that the book, I mentioned it before, but... Uh, it's it's ninety nine dollars. We'll say it's it's not cheap, but I don't know. Some listeners probably will say that there's n- no book that's worth hundred dollars. But I will say at least if, if there is any book that's worth a hundred dollars, this come close. If you're interested, because it's really beautifully produced. You have all these these two hundred fifty images. It's really just beautiful. Wow. There's some that are part of a page. Some are an entire page. Some have d- double foldouts, so it's a four page spread. Even you get there's there's just and there's many many. I like to talk more about that. I I did also want to ask you talk about the uses. Of these. So, you mentioned that they went on parchment, but at a certain point, were they just done on just standard manuscripts? And, and how about uh, being printed in Svarn? Were they even printed oh. in Svarn when we get to the age of print?
1: Yes. Okay. So, but before I forget, I want to relieve, I want to uh, bring some relief to your listeners and reward them for their attention. If they made it to this point in the podcast, go to the publisher's website and write is your discount code Ilanot, I-L-A-N-O-T, and you get 30% off. So I just got you the book for 70 bucks instead of 100 bucks. And I've heard people complaining about the price, but nobody, I never heard anybody who's who's held the book in their hands complain about the price. Only before you get the book, you complain. After you get the book, you say, oh, I understand now why it costs that much. It's really beautiful. And, um, so there there's no sense of ripoff on this. As soon as you hold it, you'll you'll understand.
0: I'll add to that. There are some books that are very expensive, certain publishers, and literally sometimes they even do print on demand. and you're like, "Wait what this is like a flimsy printed book. This is not like that. I spoke to some, I was talking to someone who's involved in the publishing industry. He's like, this book costs a lot of money to actually print because of all the like the glossy heavy the glossy paper. It's got there um, we could even talk about how you have special focus sections in the middle of the book and those are printed on a different – are different uh, color actually. Why they're like kind of like a cream color. Mm-hmm. And then you have full there's color p- pictures all over besides I said the fold out pages. So there's a lot going on in the yeah. book.
1: absolutely, you're absolutely right. Um, the special focus sections, I, I, I added when an early reader of my, you know, of my draft said, Yossi, this is really, this is hard going, man. You know, this is uh, not, this is not an easy read. You got to put some stuff in there for people who just like the pictures and who just wants, just want to feel like they got some takeaway, a little, uh, you know, like, um, some, soundbite, you know, or cash Torah, like Shlomo used to say. So I I thought, well, if I every so often, if I can say, look, here's, here's something interesting, I just want to draw your attention to. Um, I did that with the with these special focus sections. So they're kind of uh, like little uh, low hanging fruit that I'm offering to people who who don't necessarily want to get into the resolution that I get into, because, I mean, to get back to something you said at the very beginning, this is a it's a, it's an oversized book, eight by ten pages, uh, to, almost five hundred pages long. The paper is heavy, um, and but it, so it's a kind of coffee table book, but it's also a full-on academic monograph that I have to admit most people just may not want to read from cover to cover. I mean, I'm getting a lot of good feedback about the writing and people are telling me that they are enjoying reading it, but I was sufficiently concerned that it, that it might be daunting for some readers that I thought I got to make some concessions and make sure that people have some fun and get something out of it, even if they're not looking for the level of rigor, you know, that, that I invested in, in doing it, you know, crossing the T's and dotting the I's scientifically throughout the book. I wanted the book to have a, a broader readership without sacrificing uh, its integrity as a scientific monograph. Um, it's really interesting to me now to see the different kinds of people who are connecting to the book in the Jewish world, but also not just in the Jewish world. It's like sociologically fascinating, maybe for a different conversation, but it's the, the, the reception of this book is really blowing my mind. But um, but to your to your question, um, the yes I think you asked you know, do they sometimes uh, just use paper instead of parchment? Absolutely, we have uh, examples of, of of kabbalists doing that. Sometimes they use paper to practice before committing to parchment, just because the expense of parchment would make it prohibitive to use it without uh, being certain that you were ready to. Uh, to succeed as a scribe, and this is these are demanding artifacts for a scribe. Some of them are poorly executed, of course, but for the most part, uh, you had to be quite gifted uh, and have a good sense of uh, well, a good mastery of scribal calligraphy and uh, the capacity to uh, to as a drafts as a draftsman to execute the drawings unlike most um, illuminated manuscripts that people will be familiar with, in which uh, one scribe was responsible for the text, but an artist was was brought in to do the illuminations. In the case of Kabbalistic trees, it seems that that was almost never the case. And that one person did both the, you know, the decorative and uh, diagrammatic drawing and the textual uh, work on on these parchments. Um, in terms of presenting a Kabbalistic tree in a regular book, you asked about, the answer to that is also yes. Um, and this is uh, something that, uh, I mean, I call these deconstructed ilanot in my book. And you can almost always tell that that's what they are because quite frequently they retain little uh, vestigial elements from the parchments that were their source. So you might see on on one page a circle and it has uh, the name of the Sfira in it and then all of the other shemot v'kinuyim following it, but then the, the text will go on for a while until another circle comes. Sometimes there's these, Little little winks to the fact that this was once um, a larger parchment, but but it has been reformatted, like they used to say on the airlines, reformatted to fit your TV. So uh, um, so that that also exists. A uh, a a a kabbalist named uh, Sasson Ben Mordechai Shanduch. From, uh, from the turn of the 17th, 18th century, working in in Baghdad, made a ilanot that reached as long as, let's say, 35 feet, really, really long ones, some of them parchment, some of them on paper. But at a certain point, he dis- he decided to slice them up and create uh, like a, like, basically like a paperback book version of uh, one of his Ilanotes. And he writes on the cover page of his manuscript. Uh, I, I felt like it was important to do this because when people are studying the material on this ilan, sometimes they have a question in, in their mind and they need to see something that's at the end of the ilan and they're only on the beginning of the ilan. And then they have to start scrolling 10, 11 yards just to reach the thing that they want to look at. So I've cut it all up and I've put it into this notebook. And now all you have to do is flip the pages of the notebook and you'll find what it is you're looking for. So that was kind of a a, uh, a gesture to uh, people who who wanted to really sit and study and rather than, you might say, uh, meditatively scroll the elan and uh, me- Participate imaginatively in the unfolding of the worlds. Um, Illinois were only printed at the very end of the 19th century for the first time in 1864 in Warsaw. Uh, the first one was printed on paper that was glued from end to end to create a paper, a paper uh, vertical scroll. And then it was reissued in 1893 by uh, by Litvish folks who um, were the very same people who were involved in some of the printing of some of the Ramchals writing around that time, carrying lots of warnings against Hagshama. This was a big concern that people were going to introduce corporeal or spatial concepts of God as a result of seeing these images. So they... Took out all of the imagery, all even the even very uh, geometrical uh, figures were systematically remo- removed from that Litvish uh, re- reissue of the Ilan Hagadol published in Warsaw.
0: Let me ask you about some of the famous figures involved in uh, making and in producing and drawing these these uh, Ilanot. So to speak I, there are you can talk about some of the early ones, and then the Rebbe Yaakov Tzemach, Those are familiar. Rameir uh, Popper's. You mentioned the Ramchal. We have one of his, I believe. So there are you, you want to just talk about some of the famous figures of, and then that's besides for the Christian Hebrews and the Christian Kabbalists, Those were also involved. I don't know how interesting that is for people to hear about, but, yeah. <laughs> um, yeah, uh,
1: the the classical Ilanot are uh, associated with names. That are less less well known, I think, than the Lurianic Ilanot. The most famous name associated with classical Ilanot is uh, the name of Yosef Chikatila, the author of Share Ora. But uh, I don't think that that uh, that he himself made an Ilan, but his texts were used uh, in some of the earliest Ilanot. So, that, as I said before, when the early Ilanot presented introductions to Kabbalah, one of their favorite sources for texts was Jikatila. Um, the other name, was, it's a much less well-known name, is Ruven Sarfati, who, uh, an Italian Kabbalist from the 14th century uh, with obviously some kind of French background, but uh, he's less well-known. If people... He uh, probably the most people who've heard of him heard of him because he wrote a famous perush on the book, Ma'arecha Elohut but you know, I don't know how many of your listeners will know about it. It's called Perush Zulati. Um, but once you get to the Lurianic note, it's a different situation because diagramming was always part of Luriana Kabbalah, it, at least I would say from the time of Chaim Vital. I, I'm, I, I doubt that uh, the Ari himself was from the big diagrammers, but Vital already was very much involved in creating complex diagrams and even opened his own first version of the book that we know of as Etz Chaim with a, a, a fold-out diagram. So in other words, if you, you can picture it, the if a person was coming to study the original that's Chaim, written in Chaim Vital's own hand. The very first thing they would see when they opened the cover of this book would be a fold-out page, like, you know, like I have in my book, fold-out pages. It means that Rahu Chaim Vital was very clear about how important diagrammatic visualization was to the comprehension of Luriana Kabbalah. As if to say, without picturing things graphically, inscribing them in this way, it's hard to imagine a student actually being able to master this, even not to master is already a big word, but even to get an entree into this system. So so Chaim Vital, who's the most famous and, and prolific of of the Ari's students was the first diagrammer, but we don't know of any ilanot associated with his name. But already his, um, not uh, his, his, uh, der, let's just say his his grand student, I suppose, uh, this, uh, whose uh, you mentioned his name, Yaakov Tzemach, Yaakov Tzemach was in Tzfat already in the uh, early uh, 17th century. He went to uh, Damascus and was in the house of Shmuel Vital, the son of Chaim Vital, who was in possession of his father's original manuscript of Etzchaim. And Yaakov Tzemach, who had a very interesting background, and he's a, an understudied and underappreciated Kabbalist, fascinating background was a converso he spent his early life living in portugal as a christian and then only as a young you know as a young adult not even so young in his 30s he made it, he ran away from portugal and what, began learning torah in Salonika and then came to Tzfat. you can ima- it's hard for us to imagine but a guy who basically had no jewish background and began learning Yiddishkeit in his 30s. Became a rosh yeshiva in Yerushalayim. You know, by by the time he was in his 50s, he he was uh, universally acknowledged, and not just in Kabbalah. He was he became a great Talmud Chacham in all of the Mikzot Torah. He really was a like a kind of miracle, like, um, one one in a one in a million minds, kind of a. Uh, a person, he also had a photographic memory, and not. Uh, maybe that's not even the best word for it, because uh, he created a whole library of books based on things that he heard Shmuel Vital recite on Shabbos. Shmuel Vital used to read from his father's manuscripts that he wasn't willing to allow anyone to copy, but you could come to his house for Shalashudas, and he would read from his father's manuscripts until Shabbos was out, and then you had to go home. Well, when Yaakov Tzemach went home, he copied out everything that he heard Shmuel Vital say from the middle of the afternoon till Motzei Shabbos and created an initial library of of Lurianic books based on his ability to recall hours and hours of reading aloud on Shabbos. But then he, he also... Uh, was responsible for restoring manuscripts that Chaim Vital buried in Jerusalem in a gneizai mamish buried in the earth that were decaying for decades, and they were unearthed and brought to Tsamach. And Samach created in his yeshiva not only a, a place for scribes to copy manuscripts, but he created a kind of restoration and preservation center. And um, as a result, he's really a pivotal figure in the transmission of Lurianic Kabbalah. And he's the man responsible for the first Lurianic Kabbalistic tree. And he felt it was essential to create uh, a a diagrammatic picture of the way the Lurianic system describes the interlocking personae of of the, in the world of Atsilut called Partsufim. Um, so, and um, and his student, Mayor Poppers, who was a kind of half Krakowian, half Yerushalmi itinerant Kabbalist, also uh, went one step further around the 1650. He was teaching in Krakow and created for his students an even more elaborate Ilan That uh, later in the 17th century began to be combined together with semachs and to create what I call in the book uh, "great trees," which are kind of modular uh, scrolls that present the Lurianic system from a number of perspectives because they're actually originally based on, on on separate. Lurianic note, each of which had a slightly different agenda.
0: So uh, your answer of Yaakov Tzemach reminds me, I think, that originally when I emailed you a few months ago, I was to ask you to do a podcast, a biographer of Yaakov Tzemach, and then you mentioned... because ah, oh, so you saw my way?
1: article? You saw my article on Yaakov Tzemach?
0: Yeah, it was referred to it by someone. So I'm ah. going to get back to you, Yaakov Tzemach, if the listeners want to hear more. I love Yaakov Tzemach. We'll, we'll, do, a, we'll, do, we'll, do, we'll do a biography oh, about it. So interesting. Who,
1: I, I just to want to know. say about the Ramchal, though. You asked her, I forgot to mention Ramchal. Yeah. We knew that there was one Elan from the Ramchal, but year, about about eight years ago or so, I was in New York City and I went to JTS, which has a magnificent library and rare book section. and the wonderful curator of uh, Sharon Mintz, who also was uh, there and at Sotheby's, knew that they were about to close JTS soon for the re- renovation and rebuilding. She, she took me back into the vault and, and opened up a drawer and said, We have here some uncatalogued things. Maybe you should have a quick look at them before, who knows what, where they're going to disappear, you know. Take a look and see if you see anything there. In that drawer, I found a second Ramchal Ilan in in his own handwriting. So we have two very interesting Ilanot from the Ramchal in his own hand, and even some really interesting backstories about those Ilanot and his communication with his teacher about them and the trouble he got into uh, in part because of them. So that, that's, a, that's another amazing uh, Kabbalistic tree backstory. I, think, I don't know if you appreciate this, but in my book, you have, on the one hand, a lot of information about the content of these Kabbalistic trees. But as a cultural historian, an appreciator of good stories, it was also important to me anytime I could tell some something about the backstory uh, to do so. So uh, th- th- those stories are all in there.
0: Yeah, a lot of stories in here, and there's other uh, many other kabbalim, gedolim that we haven't mentioned that were involved with trees, and you can see more in the book. Um, you, I just want to get back, just to mention for the listeners that uh, Rabbi Yaakov Tzemach and R' Poppers, of Avachalom has been printing a lot of their sfarim now. There's new editions recently over the past couple of years that are available for those interested in checking out those. We
1: work uh, the Lenot Project is has a very close relationship to the to the good folks at uh, Yeshivat Avachalom
0: yeah as i mm-hmm. thank them in the introduction um so i want to ask a, a few a few final questions uh, first of all this 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 episode is coming around around Tubishvat time and and uh tuba is is there note and we're sitting here we're talking about <laughs> trees and this is Ilana kabali is there That's any it. connection at all between this and real trees or
1: <laughs> i mean you know yeah let's just say yes and make yes work as the answer um of course, uh, you know you, what are you gonna what are you gonna do? A kabbalistic tree is is a tree. Um, I one of the things I discovered uh, when looking into the very earliest materials in Kabbalah was that the that there were two images that the mekubalim liked to use when when speaking in a metaphorical way about Hashem, and one was the anthropomorphic way that we're probably most accustomed to assuming that, you know, that people are in Hashem's image. The other is the tree. The tree was a very central metaphor for the mekubalim to imagine Hashem as a kind of cosmic tree. But what they didn't do was to say that the, the diagram that we've been talking about for the past hour, that they, didn't, they didn't right away start calling that a tree. That took some time. And in fact, you know, as I said before, they liked that infographic because uh, it it didn't imp- imply necessarily spatial relationships between the the things that it was visualizing, whether it was uh, you know ancestors or the sfirot. So, so in a way, the Kabbalistic tree is. Um, it's like the ultimate non-tree, you know, because it it it's also you know you people often say well in the kabbalistic tree the roots are in heaven, and then the branches are going down, but the kabbalistic tree doesn't look like that exactly, right? So, it, it isn't it it's a tree and it's not a tree. What it has in common with Tu is 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 that beginning roughly speaking in the in the late 17th or early 18th century some uh some jews and uh, began ritualizing uh feast on tubishvat they made what we know now as the tubishvat seder and they they imbued uh, fruits and uh with uh, seeds or with 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 seeds, without seeds, with appealing, without appealing, um, white wine, red wine, with all kinds of kabbalistic symbolism. So, um, you know, they create, they made Tu Bishvat a, a holiday that was about that about tikkun, really about the enhancement and and reparation and 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 the. You know, the, the effort to bring harmony to the divine realm and th- through these, you know, through these botanical, agricultural elements. And the use of the Kabbalistic tree also is, you know, t- sort of involving uh, an imaginative engagement with, uh, with the divine in this tree-like constellation that is intended also in the very same way to bring tikkun to to the cosmos and to the divine so they, they they do have some kind of common subject and common purpose which is the tikkun
0: so another you know question that that you, you alluded to way back in the beginning is that when you, I think, when you mentioned meeting uh, Menachem Kalas, I think you said, right? Yes. There was nothing really on this, like you said. There was when you mentioned this. So why? How is it possible? There was these, they're all over the place. These manuscripts. have been, like you said, there's many of them. Many people. Many mukhabalim were involved with them. How is it possible that it was just ignored? There was no scholarship, but there was nothing on this.
1: Yes. Well, that's a great question, and uh, I don't think that there's a single answer to it, but. Um, among the the contributing factors i would mention first of all the fact that within the jewish world within the world of the of the Mequbalim, i i believe that the elan the kabbalistic tree had a, a kind of special status as a particularly classified type of artifact up through modernity. You know, when in the 16th century, when in Italy, they published the Zohar for the first time, they printed it, there was a big outcry. Many rabbanim were very much against it. So you can imagine what kind of an outcry would there would be to publish a, a Kabbalistic tree, where you see visualizations of Hashem. It sounds crazy even just to say it in that very direct way. But you can understand how from a At an internal point of view, this could be something that you would say, this should be only in manuscript and not in print, and something that should be, let's say, distributed with some care, not in the public view, because people could misunderstand what they're seeing. And you see this argument made explicitly, by the way, in the 1894 Warsaw reissuing and reformatted edition of the Ilana Gadol of that, um, um, uh, that that was printed at that time. Um, that's reason number one. The second reason is more in terms of the way intellectual history and religious history was done for most of the 20th century. And that is simply to say that intellectual historians, including historians of religion, thought that what they were supposed to be doing and what was worthwhile doing was studying texts. And they didn't see things that weren't texts. And if they saw something that wasn't a text, they would say that that that's for the art historians. But when the art historians were looking at things, they were looking for beautiful objects. They weren't looking for images that were not art. So diagrammatic representations of the, uh, you know, of the of of the cosmos that were that that had, uh, I call them iconotexts. their integrations of texts and images, were basically off the charts for everyone. Art historians said, "These are not. This is not art. And anyway, we don't understand Kabbalah." And historians of Kabbalah looked at this and they said, these are not texts. How are we supposed to study these? And so, and, and so in the end, all you got was a well, complete, com- uh, complete, uh, complete uh, com- well, how do you say it? The art historians completely ignored it. And the Kabbalah scholars at the, at, the, at the very best would take some images if they needed art for the cover of their book or if they wanted to include an illustration somewhere, if you go to Yerushalayim, to the National Library, and see the Sholem collection in the National Library, see that it's wallpapered with Kabbalistic trees. But if you went into that library a few years ago and said, where can I read something about this wallpaper? They would say there's nothing to read, because nobody had had bothered to do so. And a third thing is also, I think, a kind of sense that it was in it believe it or not, even though I think from the standpoint of the Kabbalists themselves, it was by no means an inferior form of knowledge. I think that uh, scholars, especially intellectual historians, look at this kind of thing and think it's uh, something, they think it's like magic, and they have a, a prejudice against magic. And this is something, you know, you see it in Sholem, even scholars that wrote about magic, like Gershom Sholem, w- were prone to say that magic is, is a kind of second-class preoccupation. A real person who in- had any intellectual capacity would not be involved in st- such uh, stuyot. They would do proper Kabbalah, but not practical Kabbalah. And and one of the things that I, I say about Ilanot is that they are practical Kabbalah, and by that I don't mean magic and in, in the in that most let's say, to use a horrible word vulgar sense. They don't. they but but they are practical because you practice Kabbalah with them. They are part and parcel of the practice of Kabbalah. They are tools. So again because of a prejudice against practical things and not abstract philosophical things, um, they simply were not of interest to people doing scholarship.
0: So the manuscripts and a lot of these are in manuscript as we've been discussing are yeah. in the book, color pictures. Are these were these ever anywhere available online? And where do the bulk
1: they of... They were not. Now there's more online. But like as I told you at the beginning, my introduction came through the collection of William Gross, this amazing collector, wonderful man, who lives uh, today in Ramat Aviv in uh, North Tel Aviv, and who's extremely generous with his collection. Um, and uh, it, it, it is, as I explained, I think, in the beginning of the book or maybe in the acknowledgments. uh, I had thought that I might write a catalogue of his manuscripts and then write a history of the genre. And then all of a sudden the penny dropped that I could just about tell the history of the genre through his collection. Uh, but it but and and that is uh, why his collection features very centrally in my in my book. That said, I felt no obligation to tell the story through his manuscripts. If if in any instance another manuscript was more important to illustrate a piece of this story, and and William himself was extremely understanding and kind, even uh, when it came to the point where the Penn State University Press designers decided to use an image on the cover that wasn't one of his manuscripts after I dedicated the book to him. And he, and he even made a generous contribution to the subvention of the printing expenses. Um, so, um, in fact, I uh, one of the most fun things about doing this project over the last decade was that, uh, thanks especially to the fact that not everything is, is yet online, I got to go to some great places to see these manuscripts, and I mentioned New York and JTS, but there's also important material in Columbia Columbia University's library in New York, um, in Cincinnati, in Los Angeles, um, in some private collections in the United States, uh, in London, at the British Library, in Oxford, at Oxford University's Bodleian Library, at Cambridge Trinity Library, in in the Bibliothèque Nationale de France in Paris, in the Staatsbibliothek in Munich, in libraries in Rome, in Florence, in Brescia, in Mantova, in in Parma, um, in Saint Petersburg, and in Moscow, uh, and you know the list goes the list goes on. Uh, it was an extraordinary. Journey and some of them, um, and you know, it, 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 it's not over yet. Just a week ago, I got an email from the new Semitic curator of the University of Uppsala's library in Sweden. And they have had a Hebrew collection for over 300 years. And in, in the very early 1700s, in the something like 1706, uh, An ilan was donated to their library, which remained uncatalogued. Well, not entirely uncatalogued, but was it was it was mentioned in a few words in one of the early printed catalogs of the Uppsala library. But he, this new curator, came across this enormous scroll and uh, had no idea what it was. began scouring the internet to try and figure out what in the world he was looking at, he found my project, found that ilanote.org website and realized that he was looking at a copy of The Magnificent Parchment, uh, an early early copy from around 1600, relatively early, and it is truly magnificent, and it even has some things on it that aren't in any of the other ones. So, okay, so now I got to go to Uppsala.
0: Yeah, and that's why you know there's a website, which you mentioned before. I want to ask you about the book, um, just found some final questions about the book. You mentioned earlier that, like I said, it says the Kabbalistic tree, and then in Hebrew, Ha'ilana Kabbali. Is there oh, why you did that, put the Hebrew there with the English? This is
1: so funny. You know, uh, I wrote this book, and and I had thought for a little while that I would call it the Kabbalistic tree, colon, a history, something like that. But then at a certain point, I just thought to myself, my book doesn't need a colon. I don't need, I don't need two lines. This book is about the Kabbalistic tree. It's an it's, And it's the first book on the subject. Let me just go with the iconic simplicity of the Kabbalistic tree. So when the press sent me all of the forms that you fill in when they do the intake of a book that they've accepted for publication, I wrote on the intake form, I would like to call it the Kabbalistic tree, But if if you could incorporate in the cover art in some fashion the words in Hebrew, ha'ilana kabbali, I would love that. I would just love to see that in Hebrew somewhere on the cover. Well, sometime thereafter, when the book was just about ready to to be wrapped up in in terms of production, the publisher said to me, look, you know, uh, it really needs like a more Interesting title it should be called from visualization from da 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 ba, da colon and da da da. They, it had to have an academic name with a lot of fancy words and two sides of the colon. And I said, no, please don't do that. I don't want. I don't want that kind. Of, I just want it to be called the Kabbalistic Tree. Please, just keep it simple. And in it, and then you know, I started talking to people. How much can I insist? How, and they said, you have to be careful with these guys in the in the publisher wrote me back saying listen man you signed a contract we get to choose the name at the end of the day we'd like to make you happy but we might not be able to make you happy at the end of the day we got to sell the book and we're going to name it whatever we think it should be named and i was like oh no oh no it's terrible what am i going to do it's like they've taken my book away they took my baby away and they want to give they want to name my baby so i was like you know really upset about it and then out of the blue, I got an email from the, from the from the chief of the press. He said to me, Yossi, we had a big meeting today with the publicity department, and they decided that you were right. And not only that, so we're going to call it the Kabbalistic tree, no colon. They also want to add the Hebrew as part of the official title of the book. I was like, what the? Are you kidding? I didn't say anything. In fact, I think it's quite weird. But today, if you go into Amazon and you look for the book, you see in Hebrew on Amazon that it's that is part of the title and the ISBN, the official Library of Congress catalog name of the book. It's the Kabbalistic tree, Ha'ilan HaKabali, as if the book is like a half in English or half in Hebrew. But I was like, OK, that's awesome. I'm just going to I'm going to roll with it. And I'm, I'm delighted. I'm just <laughs> delighted that it came out that way.
0: It's a great story. It is. It actually flows. The Kabbalistic Tree, Alana Kabbali, it does make it seem like some of it's in Hebrew, but it really, the name does flow. It really is, it's it kind nice. of uh, does do that. You know, you got
1: to give them credit. These designers in in, in Pennsylvania, at the, right? And they're not in Philly, you know, those guys over there in like uh, State Park, I think it's called, in the Penn State University Press. They chose a beautiful Hebrew font. They didn't, uh, they didn't, Put the characters from from left to right instead of from right to left. You know, like these people make now with the computer mistakes. Uh, I got to give them a lot of credit. I I, I should just say too to their uh, I get I I, I have a, a, a great debt to the book designer uh, whom I never met and never talked to and never exchanged emails with. They did a lovely job, and the main reason I went with Penn State University Press was that. They have a stellar reputation in the field of art history, and their books have won a number of major awards for book design over the last couple of years in the, in the field of art history. And I thought um, it's critically important for this book to be designed by a person who understands how images and text work together, and I think their result is, uh, is, is, is apparent on every page.
0: Yeah, Penn State is in State College, I think. Uh, it's, it's State cool. College. Yeah, I think I think so. Um, okay, so like I said, I'll link to the book. We can you you mentioned the code Illinois thirty percent off. I can link to Amazon Absolutely. if you want it. If it's more people might want to use Prime. Um, and I'll link to the website as well. I just in general, just to f- finish up for the you know you you mentioned you're kind of the first book you're trying to just start the process on this field. Yeah. But, so for the general reader, I mean, what can you say to? Obviously, for somebody interested in Kabbalah and Kabbalistic trees, this is the book to read if they're interested in that. But what about sure. more general? Uh, but what does this really have to offer to them?
1: Well, the, the 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 most basic thing is that it's a beautiful coffee table book, and the, you're going to see images uh, from the Jewish past that you've never seen in in any other book. It's not uh, these are not images that you've seen in in books that treat illuminated manuscripts from the past, but a whole area of, of of Jewish visual creativity that you can you can appreciate even if you're not terribly interested in Kabbalah. I should say that a number of the trees featured in this book were almost certainly created for for uh, patrons who weren't really interested in Kabbalah but who wanted to own such a beautiful artifact so uh, maybe there's some kind of parallel in what i'm saying now that there could be people for whom kabbalah isn't terribly interesting but who will really enjoy owning this artifact and and exploring it it's almost an encyclopedic work so you can dip in and dip out you can open it and fold out these enormous gatefold pages and uh, get curious about them and then you know kind of pick and choose what what to read and what uh, what you find of interest. I think that there's some there's something in it for just about everybody. And uh, initial reception suggests that uh, that that is the case. It's selling really well, and it's not just selling to uh, you know, Kabbalah professors. Okay. Um, so uh, you know, at, at the end of the day, I suppose what I should really do is ask. Ask you now. You're you're not like a person who's devoted devoted the, his life to studying Kabbalah. But you've spent a few days with the book. Um, I mean, is it is it engaging you in a way? Is it surprising you? Or are you finding it just weird or, uh, you know, uh, how 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 is it for you to
0: see so turning the tables on the interviewer? Now I'm getting interviewed. <laughs> I, I'm... I thought. I thought, no, I, what I said earlier, I thought, first and foremost, like you said, it's a, a beautiful, a coffee table book. It's a beautiful book. The pictures are just, you know, just to see, see them are amazing. To me, it's also really interesting to see, uh, the figures, the, the Kubalim, the Gedelim that I've heard of or I haven't heard of are involved. I, flipping through the book, I was able to see different subheading, you know, there was different, different people involved. I mentioned Ramchal, and Ram of Tzemach, and Ramir Popper's name I've heard of. Um, I was just uh, somewhere here in the book. It has it in front of me. I just looked. I lost it. It was uh, Nussin Nata somewhere. And there's different people. I'm trying to remember. different people. Yeah, to see them involved uh, in in the book. Besides for the different um, pictures, and as well as like you mentioned, the the nice part for me is more of a general reader when it comes to Kabbalah. You have like the in focus sections. I thought those were very interesting. There was one about uh, special focus on I mean, and Elon for the Great Elector. You talk about Tovia Koi and Tovia Royfe, Vice Tovia. Those are really interesting just to read those. Right. Is, everyone, I, I found it to be very, yes, parts of it are definitely heavier, as you mentioned. I will I will say that. Right. Of, yeah. You know, complicated terminology and complicated words. But as of yeah. all, a book, uh, it's a very, like I said, really well done, well produced volume. And, uh, it, it was interesting for me to learn about something that I had no idea. I have, I, I have seen them, the Elon, I had no idea. I, I knew they represented the, the Spiro, but did the, the, not much more than that. So it was sure. interesting to learn a little bit more about something that I really didn't know about.
1: Yofi, oh, I'm glad to hear.
0: And so uh, hopefully the listeners found this interesting, this introduction. Yeah,
1: if, if folks here do hear this... Uh... On Tubishvat, Bishvat, I'm um, I'm I'm now in in Eretz Yisrael, but I'll be in New York next week and doing a, a talk and book signing at the Yeshiva University's farm sale Monday night, and I'll be at the Manhattan Jewish Center for Shalosh and I'm and I'm kind of a Malava Malika book signing um, the, that the following Shabbos. Uh, so yeah, I'm, I'm I'll be in your I'll be in your neck of the woods.
0: Okay, and uh, and and like I, like I said on the podcast, I have to uh, we'll have to get you back on for Yaakov Tzemach and also the book uh, So that, that looks like With can be pleasure here.
1: with pleasure anytime.
0: All right, so hopefully this was like I said, informative and interesting, and there'll be links to the, so. check out uh, more pictures and the book and to purchase the book, and uh, thank you, Professor Chayes, for joining me.
1: Thank you, Naki, Thank you so much.